Please turn in the Word of God to Luke's Gospel, the 20th chapter, Luke 20. There's a couple passing through today on their way elsewhere, worshiping with us this morning, and they asked me if I knew of a particular Northern Irish preacher who preaches in, in North Carolina in an ARP church. I said, I know of him. I'm aware of him. I've never had the, the privilege of, of meeting him. And they were telling me that uh, he has received a call to, to First Columbia. And I, I just shook my head. I said, you're kidding. I said, no, no. Apparently, he received a call to First Columbia. And I mentioned this some months back. I'd mentioned that that, that that was the case. They were looking for for a new pastor down there. I say all of this because for those of you who don't know the history of that church, their last three senior ministers have been Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, his name just gone from me. Um, Derek Thomas, thank you. And, and now this man, Neil Stewart. And I thought, you had a Scotsman, a Welshman, and a Northern Irishman as your last three ministers. And, and I just, I know this church has a history of that too, I get it, uh, but it's, it just seems rather strange to me that uh, for uh, a church of that history and significance that they keep trying to draw from the British Isles, and especially those of a Celtic uh, bent over there for their pastorate. So I just thought that was fascinating and wondered to myself, what does that say about the state of, of the pastors available in America. I'm <laughs> just not quite sure what that's saying. But anyway, uh, we're thankful for faithful men wherever they are, and trust that, that that gentleman will be given help to minister in a significant church, that God will keep it, preserve it from the bigger the church gets, the more pressures that uh, tend to push in upon them to contort to the culture whatever the political ideas are of the day. So may the Lord spare them and spare us all from, from that. Also, in one sense, is, is kind of sad. I, I can't help but think, you know, that in every land you want to see those you know, young men raised up from that country itself and taking the pulpit and in one sense, that's, that should be the true even long-term of the churches here as well. Um, it's not that it's wrong for men from here to go to Northern Ireland or the UK or anywhere else, or it's wrong for men from there to come here. It's not wrong, but it does indicate a need at times, a need for more men to be prepared and trained and equipped for the ministry. So, let us pray to that end that the Lord of the harvest would ever raise up more laborers in these days. Luke 20, we're resuming our study in Luke's gospel. We have traversed as far as verse 26. So we come tonight to verse 27. And what is perhaps a rather unusual interaction in the ministry of our Savior, but may the Lord give us 
help to understand it and to be encouraged and instructed by it. Luke 20, verse 27, let's hear the word of the Lord. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord of the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that they durst not ask him any question at all. Amen. We'll end the reading at the 40th verse, trusting the Lord will, as always, give us heart to receive by faith His Word and profit from it. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Father, do take time to remember that there is a great need in this world for preachers. We pray that Thou wilt raise up an army of preachers and across faithful churches put Thy hand upon young men especially. We pray that there would be bestowed upon this generation an unusual bent to preach the Word, to desire to preach the Word. We ask for the grace needed to sever any attachments that would hinder, any ambitions that would restrain. We ask, Lord, even from this congregation, Thou wilt, as the years pass, continue to place thy hand upon men of thy choosing, we would ask of thee to take the cream of them, men whose hearts the Lord has touched, and thrust them forth in a great and deep sense of weakness, but with a sense of divine call. Give us men that sense a divine call upon their lives. Lord, Thou art able, and Thou art able to do exceeding abundantly above what we can ask or think. Do it, we pray, in this regard, for Thou hast told us to pray for these things. Bless us also, help us to labor, and help us to see the advancement of Thy cause in our own day and in our own ministry. And even now, Lord, be with us. Shut out the enemy, every distraction, that cause the powers of darkness to have no inroads, into this meeting and into the lives of men and women. We pray, save souls, 
save souls for the glory and honor of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While lust has slain its thousands, arrogance has slain its tens of thousands. Couldn't help but think of that in reading this passage and the bombardment upon the Lord Jesus Christ from those who thought that they knew better and came to Him with great confidence that they could outwit the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we sometimes look at the youth and we see in them a, a, tendency, a tendency to self-confidence. Uh, we have, perhaps all of us, I imagine, have met with those young people who, who get married and imagine, that, I get that there are marital problems, but, but that won't be us. That's not going to be us. Or, or the young people who get their driver's license, we have a couple of young men who are starting to drive, so I'll not say anything more, we have a couple of them here, and they tend to think, well, now that I know how to drive, you know, I don't need to worry, and you know, all these warnings about multitasking as you drive, well, that's for those, that, 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 you know, I'm able to use my phone while I drive, it won't affect me, <laughs> and sure enough, they learn, they learn that, well, they learn the hard way sometimes, or through a few scary experiences. Sometimes they may look at the boss's job and say, that looks easy. Anyone could do that. And all sorts of expressions of self-confidence and pride. But it's not just youth. You see it here in the ministry of Christ. These are aged men for the most part, men of experience. And they, they have this arrogance about them, this, this arrogance that is indiscriminate. It's not just for youth. And I was thinking about the effect of arrogance upon our hearts and minds and consider that what HIV does to the human body, arrogance does to godly wisdom. It makes it impossible for us to learn, to learn the things that we need to know and to grow in true character and godliness. You see it here. I, I'm not going to go back, but this scene where we're in the last week of our Savior's ministry and Luke focuses on the interactions around the temple and all of the uh, discussions that unfold and the religious leaders who come to him with their questions and trying to catch him in his words and so on. All of this just, just reeks of arrogance and pride. And our passage for this evening brings to the fore the Sadducees. Now, for the most part, they have been not really at the fore. They are a much smaller group than the Pharisees, but what they lack numerically, they more than made up for in political clout. They had great power, great influence on the Jewish council and the Sanhedrin, and they, they, were, they were tied in and connected to all the, the, the connected powers in Rome as well as in their own locality. They took their name from Zadok, the first high priest to serve in Solomon's temple. They saw themselves as following in his line, and they tended to have then this very much priestly focus. Their, their focus of attention was also largely around the temple, and so you don't find them interacting with Christ in Galilee and those surrounding regions. It's only in Jerusalem when He encroaches into their territory that their names tend to arise. This is their ground, and here is someone who is upsetting the, the status quo and the peace, and they're again coming forward to try and put Him in His place. We're told by the scholars that not a single line of their own writings survive. They're all destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. However, men like Josephus, I mentioned him this morning, but he's hugely significant when you get to this period 
trying to understand what things looked like and who men were and what they believed and so on. And, and he notes some of their beliefs. I'm not going to detail all of that tonight, but the one that's most well known is that which is expressed right here in our passage where we're told that they deny that there is any resurrection, verse 27. They had no understanding or no place for understanding life after death, the immortality of the soul, or the sense of reward or penalty after this life. And as far as their source of authority, largely speaking, they considered that to be the Torah, the five books of Moses. That's what they emphasize. This is where we get our, our teachings from. So even as you go through this passage and you think of how they came to this particular view where they, they had no, let's say, place for the resurrection, in part, as we shall see, it's because of the way they looked at Scripture. So tonight as we, looked, we look at these verses, I've, I've titled my message very simply, Silencing the Sadducees, as that's what our Lord Jesus does here in the verses before us. Simple thoughts. First of all, a question from an erroneous assumption. We have here a question from an erroneous assumption. Let's read again what they say. Verse 28, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Whose wife is she? Now, we have to state, these men are not coming like students with a desire to learn. They're not interested in any answer that would lift the veil of darkness over their eyes. They, this is, this is more of a theological attack veiled as a question. It's a dishonest interrogation. It's the kind you expect from a reporter with a bias who's, who's trying to expose the one that they're questioning. And I think it's logical to conclude that this is perhaps their, most, their strongest argument. This is the argument that, that they used perhaps in debates with the Pharisees who did believe in a resurrection. And all the others that would have believed... According to the Scripture, there is life after death. This, perhaps, I, I argue, is, is the question that they had been left without any sense of satisfactory answer. Now, when you think of that, at least as I was thinking about that, my initial thought was, well, the Pharisees had to have answers for these men. With, with such a question. I mean, if this is the strongest argument, if you're going to come to Jesus Christ to expose him and you have one question, you use your best. So if this is their best question, then how come the Pharisees were unable to give a satisfactory answer that would put this to rest? Well, I've indicated already part of the reason why, but let me just pause for a moment and understand, for us to understand that there is indeed in the Scriptures clear indication that there's life after death. And the Pharisees would have known this. You think of, of Job, for example, in Job 19, verse 25 and following, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. 
whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. But did the Pharisees know what Job said? Of course they did. Psalm 49, 15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. He's going to take me. He's going to deliver me from the grave and take me. Psalm 16, verse 10, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The text that gets utilized by none other than the apostle Peter himself on the day of Pentecost when he's arguing for the fact that Jesus Christ is the one pointed to in that psalm. Here is the one who sees us perfectly fulfilled in that he is not left to rot in the grave, but he is raised in the power of resurrection to the glory of God. Did the Pharisees not know these passages? Of course they did. So when they came to the Sadducees and they would have had their discussions and debates about resurrection, how come these verses would not prevail? Now, as I've intimated, the argument, the reason historically is because of the weight the Sadducees put on the writings of Moses. If it doesn't come from Moses, the authority is weak. They didn't have much uh, consideration for the Talmud, for any of the uh, rabbinical writings, and focus just on the first five books of the Bible. And so then the problem arises in debate with them. You're left with trying to draw out the argument for resurrection from the books of Moses. And if you can't do that, then they stand with a sense of confidence that if Moses didn't reveal it, if God's prophet Moses didn't tell us about it, then it doesn't exist. So we sympathize with the Pharisees who may have endeavored to engage and argue with them and present the case that they were up against a real battle. But what is it here that they're presenting? What was this strange scenario? I mean, those of you who've been reading your Bible for long enough will not be unfamiliar with the Leverite laws. The Leverite laws indicated that there was to be this preservation of a family line. And it was constructed in such a way that should a man who's, who's married die without having someone to inherit, then the obligation then, if he has a brother, is upon him to take his wife in order that, again, there would be the raising up of seed in the name of the brother. In Deuteronomy 25, you may study this for yourself. I don't want to get bogged down into Leverite laws and various expressions of it and details concerning it, but Deuteronomy 25, if you start looking at Gill and Calvin and so on in this passage, you'll get a better idea. Verses 5 and 6, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So that's, that's what the Sadducees are presenting. This is what Moses said. In such a case then, since you believe in a resurrection, how does this all work? It's interesting that in Matthew's account of this interaction, Matthew 22, verse 25, that the Sadducees come 
to the Lord, and they say, Now there were with us seven brethren. So it immediately makes you think, well, is this an actual historical thing? Did this happen? Was this an event they knew about? In which case, you know, you you do start reading it and wondering. I mean, it does sound more hypothetical, but when you read it and you imagine, did this actually happen? You can think of of just how committed these men were. (laughs) I mean, if, if, if someone... No, this is not, I'm not saying anything about women here, but this particular woman, if she keeps marrying and that man that she marries keeps dying and you get to the third and you get to the fourth, whoever the fifth and sixth and seventh is, they're very courageous, God-honoring men. Um, that's all I can say. And the family, the connected families would have been very relieved when verse 32 came to pass. Last of all, the woman died also. <laughs> Spare the rest of the family that survived. So you read Luke's account, it doesn't come across, it comes across hypothetical, but the, the little line in, in Matthew 25, there were with us seven brethren. It makes you wonder whether something of this nature actually uh, happened. Now, of course, there are some famous narratives in the Bible that deal with this, even before Moses, which I always find fascinating that you have Leverite. Uh, law in place in the ancient world before Moses expresses it. And that's found in Genesis 38. Now, the context of it's very tragic. You have Judah there in a place where he shouldn't be, and the whole narrative around Tamar. And I'm not going to get into that either, but there you have an expression of it. And and some argue that there in this case you have, not only is it the the obligation of the brothers in the ancient world, but even if the, the father, if he had been widowed, then he could also take that role which was playing into Tamar's need or whatever. And this is all just guess, and we don't know for sure, but that the idea of the Leverite laws are there in Genesis 38. You have it also with, with Ruth and Boaz as well. Same idea going on there. So I'm not going to get into those historic accounts, but there you have it expressed in biblical narrative. So this is something that did happen. But it required then this, the brother of the deceased to take the widow as a wife. And the first son would legally be considered the son of the deceased brother. And as I've stated already, it's intended to preserve inheritance. And in one sense, it protects the woman also. It gives shelter for her in a culture in which the widow would be very much exposed. And without a son to care for her, protect her, and provide for her in her waning years, again, you you can see even an act of mercy in the arrangement. I think also that there's an aspect of of hope expressed in it, gospel hope, because remember, it's the seed of the woman that bruises the head of the serpent. And even though by the time Moses comes around and gives this law that there's enough detail to indicate that the expectation of the Messiah is through the line of Judah, yet there is this ongoing hope within all of humanity that God's deliverer is going to come. He will have a particular man who's going to come, going to be born, and that is actually going to give the inheritance, the gospel inheritance to those who believe. So I think there's gospel significance in it as well. So this is the scenario. This is the, the, the setting that is given to our Lord Jesus. Evidently, the, again, the, the great theologians of the day didn't have an answer for this, at least not from, from any of the books of Moses. 
And so they imagine they have the Lord Jesus cornered. His back's against the wall. He's never going to discover an answer for this. All the rabbis that exist and even down through the years have not been able to answer this question. This is a conundrum. This exposes the falsehood of, of any idea in a future resurrection and eternal life. So we come to our Savior's answer. And so we have an answer from a biblical perspective. Verse 34 Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. Just saying that this is what happens in this scene of time. Marriage is a reality of life. In fact, it's obedience to God's, God's word, what God said, to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and so on and so forth. So men and women marry. He said, verse 35, they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, pointing forward, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore. They are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. So the Lord Jesus explains here, he's not giving any biblical references yet, but he, he argues the case that you're misunderstanding the change of state. There's a change of state. Those who have the privilege to obtain that world, let me just stop there. Not everyone's going to obtain that world. And the Lord Jesus makes that plain, doesn't he? Verse 35. They which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. The question you should be asking yourself is, am I counted worthy to obtain that world? How do you obtain such a status? How do you get yourself to a position where you're not, you're not convincing your parents that you're worthy, and you're not convincing the pastor that you're worthy, and you're not convincing your friends that you're worthy? The one you have to convince here is God, that you're worthy to obtain that world. Are you worthy to obtain that world? Boys and girls, I hope you understand how you obtain that world. Our sins are real. We can't hide them. We can't get God to forget about them. The only answer for us is in Jesus Christ. To be found worthy is to be found in the one who is ultimately worthy. To be found worthy is to be found in union with the one who represents sinners and can stand and plead their cause and be their attorney who represents them and argue a case without fail that they should be found in that world, found worthy because of the worth of Jesus Christ. But the state is different. They don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore. There's not the need to replenish the earth, to fill the earth in the sense of because of the expiry of men, there's not that need. So things change. And they are as the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. They now belong where they always belonged, with God. How God made man originally, in union with himself, in fellowship with himself. 
By the work of Jesus Christ, they have become, rather than children of wrath, even as others, they are children of God. The expression of their existence, the full perfection of their, their existence is found by this union with God, this fellowship with God, the tabernacle of God is with men, and I will dwell with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This, this, this is the hope of the gospel, the thread of covenant mercy from Genesis through Revelation is that God has a people for himself. He is jealous to have them where he is, and he accomplishes through the personal work of Christ all that is necessary to get them there. Luke doesn't record here what Matthew records, where Matthew in chapter 22, 29, Jesus' first words, apparently, to the Sadducees were, ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Can you imagine that? Standing before these powerful men, influential men, politically connected men, religiously elite men, and saying, you're in error. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. You don't know what God is doing in His kingdom. You don't know what all is to come. I think many people struggle with this passage. I don't know about children. I'm not sure they think much about it, but certainly those of us who are married and older certainly may have an actual difficulty with this passage. And I state to you, beloved, that the, the, the future is shrouded. We don't know all that is going to transpire. There are things our brains can't even conceive. We can't conceive a place of no sorrow. Now, you can think about the idea, but you can't feel what that will feel like. Your life is enveloped in sorrow. You can't conceive of a world where there's no pain. You can't conceive of a world where there's no grounds for crying. You can't conceive of a place where things are, or that which is alive doesn't die. You can't. It's beyond comprehension. So even on the things that are revealed to us explicitly, we struggle to conceptualize what that looks like. And there are many things that are not revealed to us. And it is hard to imagine living with a spouse for 40 years or more and not resuming that relationship after death, that the relationship changes. It's hard. I was talking with a brother just recently about this, and as we were talking, I think this may have been last Lord's Day, in fact, this came up. And as he's, ta as he's talking about it, I'm thinking to myself, he doesn't realize, I don't think he realizes that I'm coming to that passage next week. But in the conversation, what he said was, all we know is that it's better. It's better. 
The future state is better. Heaven is a place of perfect love. You don't know what that's like. Neither do I. Perfect love. <laughs> there are people you, you struggle to love. And you're not going to have any struggle to love them if they're there with you. That, 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 that battle you have in your mind, sometimes you're like, <laughs> this, this brother irritates me. You won't have that. Won't exist. That inner conflict to obey scripture, but struggling with the flesh to, to feel as you should. Gone. Perfect, uninterrupted love. <laughs> it would be a whole lot easier to pastor there <laughs> than it would be here. <laughs> it's a place of perfect joy. You've had your happy occasions, as have I. And you have moments of elation. But you have never experienced consistent, perfect joy, uninterrupted. It's a place of perfect contentment. Where you're never, I have to work today. Or struggling with having to go in and talk with that person and give them news you don't want to give them. You're, you're, there's this perfect contentment with everything. That means that the thoughts we have here, that we, where we struggle, where I, I think about a life without my spouse, where we don't have that same relationship, and it seems just difficult to see that faith rests in this understanding that bestowed upon my heart will be an experience I have never had perfect contentment. A place of perfect fellowship Oh, we should strive for unity among the brethren to love the people of God, to spend time with one another. But there it is perfect. We don't have to arrange certain gimmicks to try and force fellowship among God's people. We don't have to twist arms to convince people that isolation's a bad idea. Spend time with people. They won't need that convincing. They will be drawn to the fellowship that is there in heaven. There's a place of perfect worship. Have you ever had perfect worship? I haven't. And I stand here some Lord's days and my heart is breaking in joy. There's hearing you sing, joining our voices together, and my heart is lifted up. 
The Lord meets with me there, worshiping with you. And yet, never have I tasted anything close to perfection. So for those of you, and you know who you are, that come to this passage and, and struggle with it, let your faith rise and say, there's a state that is far higher where my relationship to all the people of God is perfect and the intensity of my love to Christ and to all that are His will supersede any experience even enjoyed in the marriages of this earth. As I was preparing and thinking about this, I thought it might be wise just to give a word to those who wonder about marriage after the death of a spouse. We don't practice Leverite laws. <laughs> You're probably re relieved, I imagine. Even though it was a law of mercy and gospel significance. And I'll say firstly, no one should feel guilty about marrying after the passing of a spouse. I think that can be a hurdle to get over, and I get it. But no one needs to feel guilty. Jesus affirms that the relationship ends, and this is why our vows state that we're in this till death. It doesn't go beyond. Second, no one should feel obligated to marry after the passing of a spouse. You don't have to. Third, the practical reasons for marriage, which apply in youth, at least in part, apply at any age. Companionship. Companionship is something we seek. It doesn't matter what age we are. Fourth, those with children still at home who may consider getting married again, I would say, need to be cautious but not handcuffed. There are practical aspects to remarriage and if there are children still at home, I think there's, there's a need to proceed with caution and care. But not to feel like you can't. I state this just for you to muse on either your current circumstances or what may be in your future. The Lord Jesus understands there's a distinction between this world and the next. And while you're in this world, you may marry. In the next world, it all changes. The people of God are united together in perfect union as the body of Christ, worshiping Him, existing in the utopia that I have 
tried to express in very simple ways here tonight. So I've given here a general perspective of the resurrected, resurrected state. I want to then move on to a scriptural argument for this resurrected state because our Lord Jesus then gets to Scripture in verse 37. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush. The fact that the dead are raised, Moses showed at the bush. When he called the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Matthew records this with a little more specificity. And of course, he, him having a Jewish audience in mind, perhaps that was even more important. Matthew 22, verse 31 and following. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am. The tense is vital. The tense is the key. I am, not I was. It would be wrong for God to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they're dead and gone. But it's perfectly harmonious to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. State that to Moses, who's living generations after their existence. I am. The idea is, I still um, as they were walking on the earth as pilgrims and strangers, I was their God there. I am still their God now. They are still alive. In the sense that they still exist. The genius of this, of this answer, is in the fact that it comes from Moses. And this seems to be what catches everyone. Well, if you can use the expression today, it blows their mind. Because Matthew records, when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. The people standing around. Even the scribes. We'll get to that, to that in just a moment. But certain of the scribes, verse 39, Master, thou hast well said. <laughs> thou hast well said. You've come up with a response to their foolishness that we have never been able to conceive. And our Lord just ends the argument right there. Moses has declared this. Now what's fascinating about this, and I could get sidetracked here, but what's fascinating about this is if you read just in terms of the historical narrative of Exodus 3 where this is stated, God's not dealing with resurrection. He's not dealing with the future life. He's not dealing with what comes after this scene of time. He's not. And what's interesting to me about that is that there's a debate, and I just say this, I'm not going to bore you with it, but there's a debate in certain circles at times where about what's, what's, what's right. Should we emphasize biblical theology or systematic theology? 
and are those who say systematic theology uh, pulls all these scriptures together and ties them in, categorizes them under these certain headings and doctrines, and that wasn't how the scripture was given. So it's wrong. You shouldn't do that with scripture. You shouldn't collate verses from different parts, pulling them out of context, and apply them to certain doctrines. And there's some who strongly believe biblical theology. Every theology should be expressed out of the, the context of the passage, keeping in mind what was intended at the time. What doctrine was intended at the time? But here you have Jesus, who was a systematic theologian. He was able to draw from Exodus 3, seeing in that text, there's a pointer to the doctrine of resurrection right there. So, we are for both biblical theology and systematic theology. They both play their part. I can never get my head around those who argue against it. Systematic theology allows you to argue and defend, give biblical apology before naysayers and those who try to um, keep you tied in and say certain things and make certain claims and so on. Systematic theology is crucial to give you a robust understanding of God's Word. So, our Lord Jesus presents the case, which finally then we have here, a commendation from an unlikely source. We do not expect the scribes to say what they say. Certain of the scribes, verse 39, answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. As far as Luke's record is concerned, this is the end of the questioning. But you read all of this, and we've dealt with this. And there's much to admire, of course, in our Lord Jesus and what he has said and how he has argued and stood his ground. Never man spake like this man, never truer words. But I go back to the, the, the challenge I was presenting to you as, as we work through this. The Lord Jesus argues the case for a future state. And that has all sorts of implications to us. It has implications to the believer. This isn't everything. I partly couldn't help but wonder if the Sadducees, in the way they functioned, they were very political. And they were very willing to compromise with Rome. As long as they kept their own power, there was a lot of of compromise they were willing to do just to retain and increase their own power power. And I thought to myself, well, that makes perfect sense. Because if you don't believe in a judgment, and you don't believe in an afterlife, you think you die here and it's gone, then you can live like the devil, and it doesn't matter. That you are, to use the the words of Joel Osteen, live your best life now. You might as well. This is as good as it gets. Take advantage of people. Make Connections to advance yourself materially. Put yourself in power. It all makes sense if you have no thought of what's coming after this life. But as Hebrews 9.27 states clearly, it's after this judgment. After this judgment. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it doesn't matter what you've believed. You're going to be there. 
and is appointed unto men. It's an, appointed, it's an appointment you can't miss. You can't call in sick. You can't say, can we reschedule? When it's up, you'll be there. You'll stand before God. You'll give account. So we sang that hymn by McShane very purposefully. Because what is that man doing? He's helping us to think about because this is true. This future existence is true. Because of all that's laid up and all that is promised and all that I can expect, it has to impact me here. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Teach me, Lord. So believers have to live in light of eternity. And this is so hard because your life and my life is so, so exceedingly comfortable. That this, this, this almost feels like a kind of heaven right here. It does. And I don't, I'm not saying your life is perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that you have everything that you could ever desire. I know that we have our sorrows. But relative to human history and what men largely across the world experience now, this, this, looks, this looks like heaven. I mean, why do people pour into this country? Because it's like the promised land. It's, it's heaven there in comparison to what they live through. And oh, how they long for their children to have the material abundance that is so easily obtainable to anyone willing to work at all in this country. And so therein lies, lies a real danger for us. A real, real danger. A danger that is so, so subtle. A danger that is imperceptible if we don't wake up and realize it's right there. It's always lurking. And it's wanting to swallow us up in the sense of it's all about now. It's what I achieve here. It's what I do now here. It's all about now with no thought to the future. So what do we do? We lay up treasure on the earth. Where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. And Jesus says, don't do that. If you can... Acquire wealth, go ahead, but don't be doing it to lay up treasure here. Lay up treasure in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven. We're going to go there and let go. We'll be forced to let go to basically everything here. Are we laying up treasure in heaven? has also tremendous application to those who are still living unsaved haven't sought the Lord you're not in Christ there is a world to come Jesus makes it plain and you need you need to be saved you need to begin where all begins there's life for a look at the crucified one there is life at this moment for thee. Gaze upon the bleeding lamb. See Christ that he came into this world that he might live and die and rise again and obtain eternal redemption. And he says to you, believe, believe, believe. And take up your cross daily and follow me. 
they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead. Christ. If you haven't Christ, how? How? With any degree of honesty, can you state a case of your own worthiness without Christ? Know thyself. See in your heart the blackness of hell itself. The defiance against God that lies there by nature. The tendency to blaspheme, to disobey, to not want God's way and want your own way is there. Amidst the exposure of the reality of your own sin and corruption, you run to Jesus Christ. Because this man receiveth sinners. Praise his name. Let's bow together in prayer. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, but thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Are you ready? Have you prepared to meet God? Have you prepared? Make preparation. You make preparation for exams. You make preparation for vacations. You make preparation for job interviews. You make preparation for all sorts of things. Have you prepared to meet God? If you need any help, I'd be glad to sit with you and open the Word and pray with you. Point you to Christ. We're alone. There is hope and salvation. Lord, bless thy word. Help us to live with eternity in view. May it never fade from our vision. We're all passing onward, quickly passing. But I ask thee, whither bound? Is it to the many mansions Oh God, help us. Should there be any, any not yet prepared, use thy word. Open their blinded eyes. Disturb their stubborn, unbelieving hearts. And show them the way, even the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ alone. Bless the fellowship of this church. Be with us. Empower us. Use us. Grace us with a sense of thy presence 
in our homes. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.